It's my intention to learn the Shemishmur. A piece of the Shemishmur. You have it on the sheet. <coughs> Doctor, my cough is basically gone. Yeah, look, it may return. There are full starts and full stops in every area of life. But right now it's gone. Not yet. But I wonder about it sometimes. Okay. We're going to learn this Shemi uh, Shmuel. Next week is Hanukkah. The Shia will take place at 8 o'clock, but it'll be about Hanukkah. And uh, 6.30, What is this? You can come and try to, try to eat us out of business. I just want to find it in my the uh, Shemishmuel, as you remember, was written by the son of the Sochetrava, whose name was Shmuel Bornstein. His father was a well-known Rebbe in Poland. He <coughs> was the son-in-law of the Kotzka. For Hasidus, that's Yichas. I guess for anybody, it would be Yichas. And his son, the son, wrote the Torah, which was largely promulgated by the father. So that even though the son quotes his father, even when he's not quoting him, it's the influence. But the father, for some strange reason, thought that he couldn't write well. And the son could write very clearly. And so he wrote the, he wrote the Torah down, and it was called the Shemishmur. The Shemishmur, this is... Hashem Shmuel is the spitz. Spitz means the. It's a spitz. Yeah, but you know, it means the high point. It's the high point of what? Summit? Not bad. But not every summit is has a point. Um, it's like the high point of Polish Hasidus. You know, there's this idea in the world that the Polish were different. There's also the idea that everybody else was different also, but the Polisher always thought of themselves as being different. And one of the things they always thought about themselves was that they were sharp. You know, they, were, they said things that were short, kurz, and sharp. Sharp. Kurz and sharp. And so they had that reputation of being kurz and sharp, the Polisher. And when they learned Torah... When they learned anything, when they learned Gemara, it was also like that. They didn't. They were not usually responsible for long, complicated uh, uh, Torah, but they were responsible for like to the point. Here's the point. This is it. Right? You get it? Like the Sfatemet. The Sfatemet. Part of the popularity of the Sfatemet is that you can get through each piece in a short time. It doesn't just ramble on. But if you ever saw the Balatanya. Balatanya wrote Svarim on Parshat Shavua, like the Lakute Torah, they're called. Every, every section goes on forever. Like, you know, it's very hard to finish once you get started. It's very like, it's just, uh, it just so uh, rambling. And in between some places, the Preet Sadiq. Preet Sadiq is also a publisher, but apparently influenced by his non-Hasidic youth. So he rambles a bit, like it goes on. The Shemi Shmuel is usually very short, and when it's long, it's because he explains it very well. So here we have on this parsha, our parsha is Vayeshev. You know that Vayeshev is the most difficult parsha in the Torah. Vayeshev is the parsha of Yosef, and how Yosef got to Mitzrayim. And the interactions between Yosef and his brothers, Yosef and Potiphar, Yosef and Potiphar's wife, at the beginning of the interaction between Yosef and, and the king. For most of the time, most of the time, the parish of Yeshef, Yosef doesn't have a voice. Doesn't say anything. 
The Torah tells us things about Yosef and what he did, but it's important to remember that Yosef is uh, basically passive. I mean, things happen to him. We don't understand why he allows them to happen to him. For example, it's hard to understand why Yaakov told Yosef to go and look for his brothers who are out grazing sheep someplace when it was very obvious to everybody that the brothers didn't like him. I mean, that's an understatement, right? They, they really didn't like him. So it's hard to understand why Yaakov said to Yosef, go, but it's even harder to understand why Yosef went. And uh, at all the time, you know, Yosef threw him into a pit, and Yosef took him out of the pit. Do kill him, don't kill him, sell him to somebody. Or Yosef doesn't say anything. You know, he doesn't make a last-ditch stand. He doesn't, like, fight against his brothers. He's, like, perfectly happy. Oh, you want to sell him to Yishmaelim? Sell to Yishmaelim. You want to sell him to Midyanim or Midanim? Sell him to Midyanim. You know, it's all... For Yosef, it was not... Nothing was a problem. They threw him into a pit. They threw him into a pit. Chazal said that the, the pit was full of snakes and scorpions. You didn't hear that Yosef was annoyed by this at all. I mean, nor do you hear that it was Gvura in the sense that Avram Avinu went into the fire, the fiery furnace. That's like a great thing. The fact that Yosef passively allowed himself to be thrown into the, into the bar, I mean, why mention it? You know, it's not, not even worth talking about. And in the Torah, the Torah doesn't uh, tell us that there was any kind of any kind of uh, reaction on Yosef's part to the way his brothers acted. What the Torah does tell us about is Reuven, Yehuda, like Reuven is sort of trying to come out of this whole mess on a little bit of a hero, and Yehuda comes out to be a hero, and why Yehuda got later on in the parish of Ayechi, you know that Yehuda becomes the favorite son. I mean, Yosef becomes the Bechor, somehow. I mean, it's hard to understand. But, you know, this is, I'm just preempting the, the Torah a little bit. But you remember from last year that Yosef became the Bechor because he got Pishtaim of some sort or other. In, in other words, instead of there being one Shevet called Yosef, there were two Shvatim. One called Ephraim, one called Benashe. That sounds like a good thing. Like, you know... I, Yosef should have been... It's not clear that he got anything, though. That's the Kasha of the Ramban. The famous Kasha of the Ramban, that Yosef, after all, where they did the Chalukah of Eretz Yisrael with Moshe Rabbeinu, and then Yehoshua bin Nun after him, divided up Eretz Yisrael. They did it by family. Every family got a certain amount of land, depending on the number of people in the family. So, it, so whether you called it Ephraim and Menashe, or you would have called it Yosef, the tribe of Yosef, what they inherited was exactly the same thing. So the Rabban has some kind of an idea that just calling it by two names is a, is a boon. A boon is an advantage. But uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the idea. Is that, is that a boon? So Yosef became the Bechor. Yehuda became the king. And Ruvain, he didn't become anything. So how come in the story, that's all has to do with our story. Like, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? I mean, Ruvain is doing tshuva. And Yehuda is trying, he says, Ma That's really a terrible thing, Ma Like Yehuda says... What profit are we going to make if Yosef dies in the pit? Let's sell him. So at least we'll have lunch money. We'll be able to go bowling or something. I go, like, like what is the... What makes him a star? And so Reuven wasn't there. So the Chazal say he went to help his father. You know, he was doing mitzvahs. And at the end, when Yaakov has to give out brochas, he says, Yehuda, you're the man. I don't even talk about Perigalabat Zayin or Perigalabat Chet. In this week's parasha, where Yehuda has this whole, gets in this whole imbroglio with Tamar. But you know Tamar? Remember her? 
So I, I, it's hard to know. I, I know they, I was once, I once thought of becoming a teacher. You know, a teacher of Torah, like in a school. So I looked into it. They told me you can't teach this parasha to children. Well, I said, why? I said, well, because it doesn't look good. She said, what do you mean it doesn't look good? Everything was happily ever after. I mean, uh, David HaMelech came from the story of Yehuda and Tamar. What could be bad about that? So in spite of the fact that it looks bad, in spite of the fact that he said, Ma'betza, Yehuda becomes the, the big winner in the story of Yosef. Right? It was Yosef gets the Bechorah. But Lamaaseh, he got nothing. In, uh, in according to the Ramban, which it seems reasonable, but right? he got nothing tangible. Ruvain was was involved in sitkus. He was doing mitzvahs. He was doing tshuva. He also gets less than nothing. Yehuda, who's trying to collect money on the sale of Yosef, on the one hand, gets like messed up with Tamar. Well, certainly not a sign of. Uh, you know, of, of, of achievement or leadership. Right? That's a big word today, leadership, which is used, it's confused with, like learning a Pasuk in Chumash and Rashi. Nobody learns a Pasuk in Chumash and Rashi anymore. They're all on their way to becoming leaders. Right? It seems to me that somebody should open an institution for followers. Because what happened was, it became very difficult to be a follower. Like there were these great, great people, and they would learn Chumash Rashi. You try to follow them. And it was hard. It was hard to be a Talmud of the Nitziv in Chumash. It was hard. So you say, oh, well, I'll give up. I'll skip that, and I'll become a leader. Right? So, so I guess, uh, like, a, like a word. It's a word that everybody, everybody, you can't be, do anything anymore if you're not doing it for leadership. So, how did Yehuda get there? This is a question not for this week, for two weeks from now. But it's a question. Now look at the Shemi Shmuel. The Shemi Shmuel says this. Now you have, the lines are not numbered, so you have to follow along. Binyan Nechirat Yosef. So the Shemi Shmuel starts off, he says, I want to, well let's talk about Nechirat Yosef. Hakol Tamhu. Hayitachen Shetzadikim Kedoshei Elyol Kibol Tam. I think the best Pasuk is here, right? Isn't it here? If you turn the page, the Pasuk says, You see page two, the top? All these sources, I just have all the sources of the, of the, of the Shemish. And was, who are we talking about? We're talking about B'nai Yisrael, Shiatzam, and Mitzrayim. B'nai Yisrael, Shiatzam, and Mitzrayim are the children of Yaakov. They're the children of Yaakov. So there's a kind of assumption that we all make. We say, if the children of Yaakov deserved Yitzhak, Mitzrayim, and Eretz Yisrael, so they must have been special, all of them. They must have all been special. Now it's true that today, today there is this uh, reality test that people do when they learn Chumash. Which I think is, uh, you know, you could put it aside. Severed it. It doesn't, doesn't, there's no profit in making the ovos into the guy who runs the grocery store down the block. There's no profit in it at all. Now it may be that we are totally fooling ourselves by saying that the ovos were outstanding and great people, but that's what Am Yisrael has lived on for the last 3,000 years, and until we find something that's really better, I think we should, like, like push it. You push it. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, they were great. They were special. I mean, I mean uh, 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 the fact that a novelist can make them into not-so-special, that's very cute. But it's not interesting, and it's not going to promote, it's not going to promote the future as it has promoted history up to now. So the Shemi Shmuel says, listen, the Torah itself says that B'nai Yaakov was special. Kam Ramzal, v'pasuk v'zacharte lam brit rishonim. Yavo al yadam chait l'chirat achehem. says, who are we talking about? What were they thinking when they sold Yosef? I mean, they knew that this was not a civilized way to act. They did not believe 
that they were acting on behalf of heaven in selling Yosef to the tribe. They didn't know anything, anything about that. And he says, uh, Also in the Midrash, this is in the Medrash. If you turn to the second page, the second page again says, you see the second, the second source? Rabbi Yeshua ben Baitud, Vishem Rabbi Yehuda bar Simon Ktiv, etc., etc. Omar Rabbi Yehuda bar Simon. Just one second. Here, here, I'm sorry. Go back to, to the second line. Lama tit anu, tit anu Hashem idarkecha. Shad sita. So what is it that the that the Shemishmuel doesn't understand? So if you'll say that everything comes from God, you'll understand the parasha. Well, I read the parasha, so I say, well, how did all of this happen? So you say, well, it happened because Yosef had to end up in Mitzrayim. It was important that Yosef should become the king of Mitzrayim. And that's why all of this happened, right? So he says, if that's true, then why would the Torah tell us the story implicating the brothers as doing something wrong? Why didn't the Torah, the Torah could have just said, Bin Hashamayim, it worked out that Yosef was in Mitzrayim. Why is it important for, you know, it's a monofshah. If what they did was important for me to know, then it turns out that these are, are not such impressive people. And so how could the Torah say later on, that they are the Balei Habrit, they're the ones who own or are participants in the Brit with HaKadosh Baruch on the one hand, or if it had to be that way, and what they did was really irrelevant. It was like God was telling them what to do every step of the way. So why would the Torah make them look as though they were doing something wrong? That's what the Shemi Shmuel, that's what Shemi Shmuel is, is asking. And this is, this is like, it. Rashi also points this out, this is like a crucial question we always have. You know, about good people, bad things happening to good people, good people doing bad things, uh, uh, how Hashkocha works, right? We all, we all start out with a basic idea that God is in control of the world, and yet we don't know exactly how this has worked out. We, you know, we look at things and we say, gee, you know, that's odd. Why would such a good person have to do such a bad thing? So this comes from our parasha. This doubt that we have, or this skepticism that we develop about the relationship between what goes on in the world and what God wants, all comes from the parasha of Vayeshev. That's where it is. That's the address. As, as you, you write, as Abalatanyu said, you know, that every parasha, every parasha is what's going on in the world. That week, you look at the Parsha of the Shavu, you know what's going on in the world. But here, you look at the Parsha of Ayeshev, every year, you're in the same dilemma. In the same dilemma, if God is in charge, then God is in charge. So why would the brothers have to do bad things for God to be in charge? That doesn't make any sense. So now, uh, the, the, it goes on. Right, I'm, I'm up to Mikol Makom. Adayin yeshel havin. Imkein lama neenshu alze onish chamur shel asara harugei balchut ki yadua bezor hakadosh. Now, this is a this is a trick that the Shemesh Shmuel can do because he knew all this literature. Right? For us, it's a little strange because we don't know what it is, what he's talking about. So what he's talking about is just one second. What he's talking about is a passage in the Zohar. And the Zohar says, the Zohar is the Tikkune Zohar. Tikkune Zohar is part of the Zohar. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter so much why it has a different name. But if you're interested, you can look into it. 
There's a part of the Zohar that's called Tikkune Zohar, which is a series of essays on different topics, as opposed to the Zohar itself, which goes according to the Parashat HaShavuah. It's like a Midrash. Whereas the Tikkune Zohar is material that's collected in a different way. Right? It's like sort of a topical. It's topical. So Tikkune Zohar, Tikkun Samachtet, 69... On page Kuf Yud Amar Aleph, the Zohar is one of, besides the Shas, there are two Jewish books that have universal pagination. One is called Shas, so I can always refer to a Gemara that I'm learning by page number. And the other is the Zohar, where I could always refer to the Zohar by page number, even though there are different editions of the Zohar, but they always refer back to the page number in the standard edition. Okay, I hope that wasn't too confusing. It says, Asara harugei malchut hayu domim b'tsuratam l'asara b'nei Yaakov. So, it was the Asara harugei malchut, you know that terrible, that terrible moment in history where not only was Torah oppressed, but the leaders of Torah were oppressed. Right, you know the Asara harugei malchut, we, we say the Medrash, Atish Abba'av, and we say that in Yom HaKippurim, about the Tanaim who were killed because they studied, because they studied Torah. And this, uh, this is for us, for us, like, like, even though it's not really a moment, the ten uh, Harugay Malchut were not, didn't live exactly at the same time, but that doesn't matter to us. To us, we see the, this as being an equal to or even greater catastrophe than the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, because the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash prove to us that we can live with Torah. But then the destruction of Torah would be, that would be the end of everything. So Asara Harugait, Malchut is terrible. So along, come, along comes the Zohar, and the Zohar says, Ten Harugait Malchut, Ten Banim of Yaakov. So now, you could be uh, lighthearted about this, and say, well, ten, like this connection, ten and ten. Yet you have to understand when the when the Tanoim or the Amoroim, uh, the people who are reflected in the Zohar, right, the people who said this, right, in order to say such a thing, it has to mean something. You can't say ten and ten and then go home, you know, say Kaddish Drabonon. It doesn't work that way. There would be no one else in the room would allow it. Everybody, somebody got up and say, oh, there are ten Haragay Malchut, the ten sons of Yaakov, that's it for today, let's go home. You couldn't get away with it. No one would say Kaddish. You have to say something meaningful. In order to say something meaningful, so the Shem Yishmuel says, this means, right, back to the Shem Yishmuel. Back to the Shem Yishmuel. The Shem Yishmuel says, Ki kadosh ki That means all of you who know the Zohar Baal Peh, you all know that. Uh, he says, he says, In other words, the, this idea, the way the Zohar looks at it is that the Bnei Yaakov created a breach in the, in the world. Like there was something wrong with the world as a result of what they did. And that needed a tikkun. And the tikkun for the, for the ten sons of, for the ten sons of, of Yaakov Avinu, right, ten sons. Because Binyamin wasn't there and Yosef was, he was being beat up on. So the ten sons, the ten sons did something terrible in the world. And the world had to be fixed. Right? They had to glue it back together again. And according to the Zohar, what glued it back together again was this almost destruction of everything in the Asura Haragei Malchut. So he says, he says, It was so terrible. After all, you would think that so much time passed. And, and so much history passed. And why would HaKadosh Baruch want to punish us with the Asarah Harugay Malchut because of what happened to B'nai Yaakov? Oh, Lama Haitakazot, Alokativ Raglei Chasidai Yishmar. It's a Posak. Right, a Posak. We turn the page. Turn the page. Shmuel, Aleph, Perek, Bet, Posak, Ted, Raglei Chasidav Yishmar. Urishaim Bachoshech Yidamu. Anyway, what this means is that that Hakadosh Baruch Hu is forgiving. 
and, and watches over things. And is not interested in, in taking the Kama hundreds of years later over what the Bnei Yaakov did. So, Vatan Ayala Hefech. That God did not watch over the children of the ten brothers, but that God punished them severely. But now I wanted to, so the Shem Yishmuel says, I, I brought this up many times, right, in the, in the, even in the Shem Yishmuel, but I want to say something that I haven't said before about this question. So the question is, why were the brothers, why did they have to be bad in order to get the result? Were they really bad? On the one hand, it had to be that Yosef had to get to Mitzrayim. On the other hand, you see the Zohar says, they were so bad that you could compare them that, that their uh, kapara, so to speak, their atonement, is the Asara HaRagei Malchut. That's what, that's what Shem Ishmael said. The Igbar Higadnu Pamim Rabot B'Shem Kvod Kacho Alvi Admor Right Zecher Tzadik etc. B'Divrei Hagadah he said, this was a well-known comment that my father made. When we read the Haggadah, Vayered Mitzrayimah, that Yaakov Avinu was forced to go to Mitzrayim, Anus al-Pi Hadibur, that Yaakov didn't want to go. But Hashem told Yaakov, he has to go. And then Yosef sent the wagon with the, with the horses, and, and they went to Mitzrayim. So, uh, so now, this is what the Sochachover is explaining. So what do you mean Yaakov didn't want to go? Like, like where did he get the strength? Where did he get the strength to want to not to go? Because HaKadosh Baruch told him to go. And he knew from Avram Avinu that there would be an exile in Egypt. So, so, what's there not to want to go? I mean, he's going to go. So, this is how he explains it. Galut tachad yad zulato. In other words, if he would be in galut, oppressed by someone else, in this case, Paro. Paro was going to oppress Yaakov. He says, Ifsha, elak sheyesh ksatishtavut beinehem. He says, there has to be some parity. Parity, equality. It was, it was, in order for Paro to overwhelm Yaakov, in some way Paro has to be like Yaakov. He can't be like, like Stamen over there by the Zora. Some guy who, who, who has no uh, fiber, moral, ethical, military, he's nothing. So he can't, he can't do that. So, so that's what Yaakov said. Yaakov said, I'm not going. He didn't mean I'm not going to listen to God. What he meant was, the Galut can't start now. Because who's in charge? Paro. Paro, he's got nothing on me. I mean, I'm not going to subject myself to Paro. So listen to what, how he explains it. He says, Yaakov and Paro have to have parody somehow. He was perfectly sanctified. It was sacred, a sacred person. And he quotes the Zohar again without saying where it is. He never had a nocturnal emission. And Mitzrayim, we know, is the opposite of that. Mitzrayim is, uh, is licentiousness and, and sexual deviation. And, and Yaakov was pure. Yaakov was pure. Let me go into that. But we understand the stories of Yaakov and Rachel and Leah and, uh, and how he was willing not to break the miskeret, right? He married Leah and he worked about seven years for Rachel. He was, so, so the, the, the Zohar, the Kabbalah, sees Yaakov as being a very important person in this area. And where's what's the tribe? Everybody knows that the tribe is Ervata Aretz. Is the worst place in the world. The place where, where sexual behavior has no bounds and no limits. There's no super ego in, in Mitzrayim. So how did it work? That's what the Shemish rule says. How can Yaakov Avinu go to Mitzrayim? It, it, it doesn't fit. Like you would think that, that it was like a magnet. Like you put the plus and the plus together, they run away from each other. 
that if Yaakov Avinu would go to Mitzrayim, he would run out of Mitzrayim right away. He wouldn't be able to stay there. It's just, it's just not possible. It's like, it's like a from person going into a, into a McDonald's. Right, this happened to me once. That was I was in London. And what's the name of that place? You know the big shopping center that all the Jews go to? What? Brent Cross. Brent Cross. Brent Cross. I had to go to the bathroom. I was sitting in front of the McDonald's. So they said to me, you go to McDonald's to the back. And there's a bathroom. So I never tried that before. <laughs> never tried that before. So I had, of course, I was wearing a hat because I had a and wondered that somebody would do, identify you as an Orthodox Jew. That would, be, uh, that would be the end of the whole system. The whole system would collapse. No, it's not, you, no, it's not that it's not that you're fooling anybody. It's you giving in. Adarabba, you're not fooling anybody. But you're not wearing a yarmulke. So anyway, so I walk in, and I walk out, and I said, "What was that smell?" <laughs> so he said, "Trafe hamburgers." They told him. I said, "Trafe hamburgers, gods." That's a terrible smell. It was just that then they said to me, no, it smells exactly the same. I said, no. It doesn't smell exactly the same. It's, it's different. You know that story Rabbi Yaakov Kavanetsky, the Kremlin Rocha once said, he was eating in his son's house. I think I told you the story. His son was my neighbor. Nelson Kavanetsky, who, who has subsequently become famous because he wrote this book called The Making of a Godel. So nothing. So I walked into the house. I didn't know his father was there. Hello, how are you? Sit down. So Rabbi Yaakov was telling this story. He said to his son, Nussin, he said, did they take trumas of using salads? Did they take trumas of maizers? With trumas of maizers, take it. You know, you shall lie. Whoever asked such a question, because to buy a tomato that trumas of maizers haven't been taken, you have to make a very big effort. Right, but Rabbi Yaakov came from Chutzlarets and he said they take Trumas and Meisers. So he said, the Basel said to him, yes, not a problem. So Rabbi Yaakov said, you know, Trumas and Meisers is not like treif meat. If I, somebody would give me treif meat to eat and I would eat it, and then they would tell me it was treif, I would vomit. So how can you eat treif meat? I've been in my, it's Girsu the Ankusa, but when it comes to Trumas and Meisers, I grew up in, in Lita, he said. We didn't have Trumas and Meisers. So you're, like your instinct is different. Food that you never ate, something you never ate, and something that you're always careful about, it, it's repulsive. Even though it's exactly the same. It becomes repulsive to you. That's what he explained. That's what Girsi the Ankusa is. It's without Seichel. It's, it's like a disdain for something. But, but it's not that's nothing to do with Seichel, because it really is exactly the same. But it's not exactly the same, but it smells exactly the same. Nevertheless, you're disgusted by this and you're not disgusted by that. So, so, so how did he do it? How did Yaakov Avinu go to Mitzrayim? Physically, how was he able to, how was he able to cross the border and go to Mitzrayim? Yaakov Avinu is pure. Mitzrayim is a terrible place. So he says, oh, it's in the Medrash. But Masha Piv Batala. Give a medrash. The medrash says, if you turn the page, let's turn the page. It should be here. This is like a mystery thing. Vayome Yisrael Labahariotem. Vayome Yisrael Labahariotem. Rabbi Levi, Bishay Rabbi Chamo, Bachanina, Meolam, Loya, Yaakov, Avinu, Omer Daval, Shele Batala. Elakan. He says, Yaakov Avinu never said a meaningless statement except for this. Why? Because Yaakov Avinu knew that this had to happen. Yaakov Avinu knew he was a prophet and he knew that Yosef had to go to Mitzrayim. So what is he bothering them for? What is he bothering his sons for? Telling them, lose, that's a terrible thing, terrible news. He should have been taking a schnapps and having a good time. Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, says to Yaakov Avinu, Ani HaKadosh Baruch Hu asuk lab lichet b'no b'mitzrayim. I'm busy trying to figure out how to get Yosef to Mitzrayim so that he can become the king. 
So he says, hey, this guy, Yaakov, he says, what are you, what are you bothering me for? It's like, it's like dissonance. You know, dissonance, you would think that a person of Yaakov's stature would be with HaKadosh Baruch not against HaKadosh Baruch So HaKadosh Baruch say, says, I'm trying to get, get Yosef to Mitzrayim, and here comes, here comes Yaakov, and he says, what are you doing this for? So he says, that's the thing that Yaakov Avinu said that had no meaning. It was totally out of character. And therefore, back to, back to the Shem Shmuel, this is the only worthless thing that he ever said, called Patala. He says, why did you tell the guy in Mitzrayim that you have a brother? And this, the Shemishmo calls this a pagam, a blemish, in the Brit Halashon, in the covenant of language. And the covenant of language means that whatever you say is going to be Lashon HaKodesh. Whatever you say will be on that level. A level of being with HaKodesh Boch. And certainly not being against. And he says, Ma'or is a Hebrew word that appears in, in Ovadia, I think. It appears in one of the Nevi'im, but it means erva. Even though it looks like a different word, it means something that is sexually unacceptable. Al-Kain. Machmat z'adibu shabatala. Hayat shashetayachez bo galut mitzrayim akhanvara. And so, we understand. How could Yaakov Avinu go to Mitzrayim? How could he be absorbed into that land? Well, there was something wrong with Yaakov Avinu. He spoke out of turn. He said, Davar Shabbatala. And because he said a Davar Shabbatala, there was a blemish in him. And that blemish is what allowed him to go to Mitzrayim. This is what, this is what my father said. I'm sorry. He says, and we say, the Shem Yishmuel said, like everything else came from God. Remember the, uh, the Medrash? If the brothers love each other, the brothers hate each other, it all comes from God. So this also comes from God. Why did, why did Yaakov Avinu say, Lava Hariotem? Because God wanted him to say, Lava Hariotem. Because, look at it this way. Since there had to be an exile in Egypt, why? It's a different question for a different time. But it had to be an exile in Egypt. And since ya- Yaakov had to go with his sons to Egypt to live there, so God made it possible for this to happen by imposing this blemish on Yaakov Avinu. So this idea that you could always see things as the product of free will, and then ultimately you could always see things as the product of God's design, is is a fact. That's how we understand it. That's how we understand it. That we understand because of the Rabbim, which he will get to. He says, even though Yaakov Avinu didn't really go into the exile of slavery, right, because Yaakov Avinu just lived in Mitzrayim for 17 years, and then he died. But he did not. He was not part of the oppressive slavery that B'nai Yisrael went through. So it was possible for Yaakov Avinu to become part of that exile. Oh, he sat there. He was a big shot. Paro liked him. And Paro gave him kavod. It's hard to say that that's the exile that God was talking about when he said to Avram Avinu 400 years in the tribe. That's not the 400 years. 400 years of slavery. This is not only in the Zohar. This is also in a Medrash, but he quotes the Zohar. And he says that the 17 years were the years when Yaakov Avinu almost found peace. Almost. Peace meaning 
he had nowhere to go. Right? When he was young, he had to go to Lava. When he came back to Eretz Yisrael, he had to confront Asaph. When he thought that he would be able to settle quietly, the famine came. And the stories with Egypt. So Yaakov Avinu never had, never had a time until he got to Mitzrayim where he knew that that was the last station. But Mitzrayim was the last station for Yaakov Avinu. When he got to Mitzrayim, when he got to Mitzrayim, that's where he stayed. And the Zohar says that, that Yaakov Avinu had this way, Ikar Shnei Chayav. And the only reason you call it a galut is because he was in a foreign land, an unclean place. But he himself, he himself lived like a king. He didn't suffer. He wasn't oppressed. He had his family with him. He lived in Goshen in an independent tract of land where he was able to live the way he wanted to live. And so we remember at the beginning of Vayechi, the, the Torah says, Shal Yisrael, all the children of Yaakov didn't realize what was happening to them and that they were on their way to a terrible slavery. Even though Chazal say that the physical slavery didn't start until after Yosef died and all the brothers died. But still we know that it's like Hanukkah. You know, like physical, physical slavery and spiritual slavery are not always identifiable. They're not always at the same time. But when, even when there's no physical slavery, there could be a, another kind of slavery, an oppression. Right? Oppression. Today, today, we don't think much of it. We don't think of much of it. We don't mind that, you know, that there's somebody in Paris who's telling me what my clothes should look like next year. Right? We don't mind that. We, we accept that kind of physical oppression as being a spiritual oppression. And not only that, these people in Paris, they, they really think that it's wisdom that they are adding to my existence. Right? If, if, if everybody would just stand up and say that this is ridiculous and close them down, which is what happened to investment banking, by the way, that I think it would be a masatov. You know, if everybody was going to a store, everybody always going to a store, I want what you sold two years ago. It would be a revolution. It would be wonderful. It would just be, well, there's not that much difference, you know. I mean, maybe you think there is. But, you know, I don't think there is. Ela Shalokim, again, how could that be? That Yaakov's sons would be oppressed by a spiritual, in a spiritual manner. So what's the pshat? The question was, the question was, I mean, it's like a world view. It's a world view. You know, of a great man. Great, a great man because he was a great leader of other Jews. And because he knew a tremendous amount of terror. We're talking about two people, really, the father and the son, who both agree about this. And they're trying to navigate this idea that we have Bechirach of Shit. And that HaKadosh Baruch is in charge of what happens in the world. They're trying to navigate it. Right? And, and it's not easy. All the Rishonim who tried to deal with this question admitted that it's a hard question. The Rabbim especially is the one who said, I can't figure it out. So don't bother yourself with it. If I can't figure it out, you can't figure it out. So it's good. So we were comforted. Since the Rambam, we are all comforted. Because we all know that the question of how you accommodate free will and uh, uh, God's uh, uh, concern 
about the world. It's a question that you can't answer. So I'm happy. Because it's not because I'm stupid. No one can answer it. Oh, no one can answer it, Baruch Hashem. But now I'm happy. So he said, the way he navigated this, the question is, why does the Torah tell us that the sons of Yaakov did this terrible thing? Right Now that question is further divided up. Isn't it true that they are great people? Isn't it true that they are the source of Am Yisrael? Isn't it true that they have, they're considered to be uh, Kedoshe El Yon, sacred people? That's one part of the, of the question. <coughs> the second part of the question is, if God wanted Yosef to go to Mitzrayim, so God could have said, poof, and Yosef would be in Mitzrayim. What? They have to go through this miserable process, which on the one hand, leaves us questioning the status of the brothers of Yosef, and on the other hand, on the other hand, makes, makes us uh, 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 curious, or, or hard for us to understand, why this process had to take place at all. And what difference would it make if Yosef would just showed up in Mitzrayim and met Potiphar, and Potiphar would have said, I got a good job for you, take this job, and then he would have gone straight to Paro. Paro would say to Potiphar, I'm looking for a good man to run my business. And he would send over Yosef, what do you need Mrs. Potiphar for? What do you need jail for? What do you need Tabachim? What, what do you need all that stuff for? After all, we're living in a wondrous world. In a world that's run, that world, the world of the Torah is run by Kodesh Bochum. So what does it have to be so difficult? So he says, he says there's Galut and there's pre-Galut. Galut is not a problem. Because the people in Mitzrayim who, I'm talking about, I'm sorry, there's Shiabud and there's pre-Shiabud. There's slavery and there's before slavery. He says slavery, that's not a problem. Because the people who were enslaved in Egypt deserved to be enslaved. Why did they deserve to be enslaved? Because they gave in to spiritual oppression. The people who lived in Mitzrayim. But the question is, how did they get to Mitzrayim? After all, Yaakov Avinu and the brothers, they were not giving in to spiritual oppression in Eretz Yisrael. They were... They were great people. So how did they get to Mitzrayim? How did they get to Mitzrayim? So the answer of the Shemi Shmuel is that each of them, Yaakov Avin on the one hand, and the brothers on the other hand, did something wrong which enabled them to get to Mitzrayim which then enabled their children to be in a state of spiritual compromise. What did Yaakov Avinu do? He said something he shouldn't say. Lama Hareyota. He said to his, to, his, uh, to his sons, Why did you tell Yosef? Yosef? He didn't know it was Yosef. Why did you tell him that there's another brother? When Yaakov Avinu knew that this was part of the divine plan. What about the brothers? What did the, what did the brothers do? Ah, the brothers sold Yosef as a slave. And that they should not have done. And having done that, Yaakov Avinu on the one hand, and, Yo- and his brothers, the brothers of Yosef on the other hand, could then enter into a state of partial exile. It was physically, they were exiled from Eretz Canaan. Even though spiritually, they maintained an independence from the spiritual oppression that existed in Eretz Mitzrayim. On the other hand, when they all died, when Yaakov Avinu died, and, and, and the brothers died, then the spiritual oppression on the next generation became overwhelming. Because they didn't come with that baggage that Yaakov Avinu had from the house of his father and his grandfather and that his sons had from the house of, of Yaakov Avinu. And now he goes on. Now that we've done that, he goes on and he asks the question that you want to ask. And he says, 
שיונף כאדם חיל כזה, זה רק הסטייק, זה לא נסתם. To produce tzaddikim, that's God's investment in creation. Like why did God make, so why would God make the tzaddikim do transgressions in order to get some other purpose? Like it, like it doesn't make sense again. Why would God take a tzaddik and force him to do something wrong in order that should be exiled? What, what is that all about? The Harek Tiv, the same post again, Shmuel Aleph, the love of the Enshu, Achyesh Lomar. Remember that pasuk at the beginning of Ayeshev. It says that Yosef would tell tales about his brothers, which of course was the beginning of the outstanding relationship between them. And so the Shemesh Mul says, you know, it's in the Medrash. What did he say, Yosef? Rabbi Meir Amar. Your children, Yaakov, he said to Yaakov, your sons, I suspect that they're eating Eva Menachai. You know, they take like a leg of a chicken, leg of a cow, they pull it off and they eat it. Rabbi Shimon Omer, No, they're looking around, they see the girls walking around, you know, and they enjoy that. They enjoy the girls in Eretz Kenan. Rabbi Yehud Omer, that they, that they make fun of the sons of the of the shvachot of the maid servants, right? Zilpa and Bilha and Zilpa, and they say, you know, that they're not like us. That Yosef was punished for all three things. Mashma. And, and, and from that, you see that Yosef said all three things. It wasn't like this about locus. Either Yosef said A, or Yosef said B, or Yosef said C. But uh, the way to learn the Medrash is that Yosef said all three things about his brothers. He said all these three things. The Enoch Nigru So how come each one is a machlokas? So he says, well, each of these uh, Amoroim think that this was the biggest Avera. Or this was the biggest thing. that, And the other things he said also, right? Either one and also two and three, or two and also one and three, etc. Listen. This is the parsh. This is Parshanut. This is not the Shemi Shmuel. He's, gonna, he's quoting somebody. He says, Avshabemet, Chas Vishalom, Lo Avru al Eila, Ela Shakachnit Bel Yosef. He says, We understand that the brothers really didn't do any of these things. But Yosef just thought that they did. Kemoshe Erichu Bazeb is Rachi Vigurayeh. Mizrachi Vigurayeh are two very expansive Perushim on Rashi. Also very popular. The Gura was written by the Maharal, and the Mizrahi was written by Mizrahi. That was his thing. Two very long perushim on, on Rashi. And so they both agree that it's inconceivable that the sons of Yaakov would do averas of this kind. So what did Yosef come to tell Yaakov? He said, I think that they do this. I think that they do that. He says, Bemet. That's what Yosef said. He didn't say, I saw them eat it. But he said, I think that that's what they're doing. He says, what do you mean they're looking at women? Maybe they want to find wives. Maybe they're doing business, they're buying, they're selling. I mean, they're, they're not, uh, it's not licentiousness of some sort. So he says, none of these things are sins. In fact, there's no ma'aseh. It's just that people on such a level, that's what Yosef said, to be the son of Yaakov, you have to live up to a higher code, a higher standard. And 
והיה סברו שהם עוברים על והייתם נקיים מהשם מישראל. He says, oh, I don't understand. But that's what Yosef thought. That's what he said. He thought that they were doing things that they shouldn't do. Is it possible that this is what God made Yosef speak, say? That Yosef came with, a, with an attack against his brothers, but he didn't mean it. He didn't mean an attack. He meant, uh, well, maybe it seems like it looks like they're going in the wrong direction somehow. That's called Garmi. Anyway, so 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 the 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 Shemish There's another piece, but the Shemish brings another proof. It brings another proof that that in order to fulfill the greater goal. And the greater goal was getting B'nai Yisrael to Mitzrayim. And the B'nai Yisrael that had to get to Mitzrayim included Yaakov Avinu and his sons. In order to create, in order to ensure that greater goal, what had to happen was that, that Yaakov and Yosef and the brothers would have to act out of character. They would have to do things that they would never do if not for the greater goal. So Yosef generated this hate that the brothers had for him by saying to Yaakov, the father, that the brothers did bad things. And since they did bad things, uh, you know, maybe they're not really your sons. Maybe they don't deserve to be considered the sons of Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov himself and the brothers had to do something that would enable them to participate in the Galut, even though for them going to Mitzrayim was inconceivable because they were pure and Mitzrayim was treif. So what happened was in the course of things, they did, they did an indiscretion. Yaakov Vidu talked too much and the brothers sold Yosef sold Yosef to Mitzrayim, as a result of which both Yaakov Avinu on the one hand, Yaakov Avinu on the one hand, and his sons on the other hand, were able to begin the galut, the physical galut, which did not imply a spiritual galut. When that galut, when the, when the time came and Yaakov was dead, and Yosef was dead, and the brothers were dead, then the imposition of the physical galut, the physical oppression of galut, on top of the spiritual oppression, could begin. So, Shemi Shmuel tried to answer the question. The question is, the question is, on the one hand, how is it possible that the brothers and Yosef did these bad things? And the second question is, even if it was necessary, if God deemed it necessary for the brothers to do these bad things, why are we privy to the story? What do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? So I don't know if this is an idea that has any appeal or not, but it would seem that what the Shemesh Shmuel is saying is that there is a big idea. And the big idea is that Bnei Yisrael have to be enslaved in Mitzrayim for some period of time. But that getting to Mitzrayim can't really contradict the essential nature of what has been produced in the generations of Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov. And what has been produced over those generations is that Mitzrayim and Avram, Yitzchak and Yaakov don't mix. We all know that the Torah says don't go back to Mitzrayim. And we all know that the reason that the Torah says don't go back to Mitzrayim is because Mitzrayim is, an, is, is a place that's contrary to spiritual development. How so? Mitzrayim is the place where water comes from the Nile. And since the water comes from the Nile, you don't have to pray for water. It's always there. And the system in the world, the system of Eretz Yisrael, where water is always a problem, including today, 
that generates a feeling of, of, of being subservient to the will of God. And therefore, the Torah says, don't go to Mitzrayim. Stay in Eretz Yisrael. It may look good in Mitzrayim, but it's devastating to the spiritual development of the Jew. So how is it possible for Yaakov and his sons to go to Mitzrayim? How is it possible for Yosef to go to Mitzrayim? After all, they were who they were, and there should have been some kind of a, 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 a dissonance between them and Mitzrayim. The answer to Shem Shmuel is that each of them, Yaakov, Yosef, and the brothers, each of them did something that made it possible for them to absorb the negative of Mitzrayim and to go there. Of course, this was ultimately orchestrated by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but it was orchestrated so that it would make sense to us. That's what the Shem Shmuel is saying. That there are times when things happen that are, appear to us to be very strange. But if you look at them very carefully, you'll find that they are supportive of the basic system that we were taught to believe in. So that we understand that good people are good and can't do bad things. Likewise, bad people until they do tshuva. But in order for good people to go to places that about whom there is this dissonance that I spoke, there had to be a crack in the armor of their goodness. And that's what the stories in the parasha of Yeshev are about. Have a good Shabbos.